Welcome to Flip the Script Podcast. This is transmission number 12. So today I'm going to be covering a book entitled The Art of War, written by Sun Tzu. And I'm going to begin this with a quote that is written on the back of my copy of this book, which says, Water shapes its course according to the nature of the ground over which it flows. The soldier works out his victory in relation to the foe whom he is facing. Therefore, just as water retains no constant shape, so in warfare, there are no constant conditions. So I chose to do this book because this is referred to as the oldest military manuscript that exists. And it is genius. At the time that it was written around 500-something BC, and it is still relevant today. Um, It is relevant in warfare. It is relevant in our everyday lives. Now, there's a story that is written in the biography of Sun Tzu that I want to go over. I'm going to get into that in a moment. However, there is some other history that I want to explain about Sun Tzu before actually getting into the 13 chapters of the Art of War. So the Art of War is 13 chapters, and it is referred to sometimes in history as the 13 chapters. And there's multiple historians that wrote about Sun Tzu. Uh, They took his work and they did commentary on it. And we're going to read through that as I cover this book. This is going to be a multi-podcast book, just as I have done in the past with the other books and are still doing. So Sun Tzu, the history of Sun Tzu. Sun Tzu is also referred to as Sun Wu. And he lived in a time when China was divided up into multiple kingdoms, right? And he he served under a king whose name was Holu uh, Holu Wu. Now, excuse me for butchering these Chinese names because they are pretty hard to to say. So I'm gonna do my best. Don't don't kill me for that, okay? All right, so this is some excerpts from the biography of Sun Tzu and a historian, Chinese historian named Suma Qian writes that about Sun Tzu himself, there is a story that I'm going to explain. And uh, he doesn't give too much about the life of Sun Tzu other than this story. However, he does talk a lot about his, one of Sun Tzu's descent. He does talk about one of Sun Tzu's descendants, whose name is Sun Pin, who lived about 100 years after Sun Tzu, who was considered to be a military genius in his own right. But he is also referred to as Sun Tzu as well. Sun Pin is also referred to as Sun Tzu. 
and Sun Tzu is referred to as Sun Wu. Okay. So it is said that Sun Pin had his feet cut off and that it is likely that the nickname Pin was given to him after his mutilation or it is said that the story was invented uh, in order to account for his name. So he either did have his feet cut off, which gave him the name Pin, or they made up that story so that they could have a reason why his uh, his name was Pin, right? Some Pin. All right, so the story about Sun Tzu that I want to talk about in this podcast is extremely interesting. And it has a lot of relevance to today. And so we're going to get into that. We're going to flip the script, and that's what we're going to get into. So this is uh, Su Suma Chien's version of the biography of Sun Tzu. So it says that Sun Tzu was a native of the Chai state. His art of war brought him to the notice of Ho Lu, king of Wu. Ho Lu said to him, I have carefully pursued your 13 chapters. May I submit your theory of managing soldiers to a slight test? So as I said, that the manuscript of the art of war is also regarded as the 13 chapters, especially across the Chinese kingdoms at the time. So Sun Tzu replies to the king, you may, meaning in reference to the test that the king wanted to perform about his leadership skills in managing troops. So the king asks if the test can be applied to women. And Sun Tzu replied, yes. So they made arrangements to bring 180 ladies out of the king's palace, and Sun Tzu divided them up into two companies and placed one of the king's favorite concubines in charge of each company. So they had two of his favorite concubines in charge of these two companies made up of 180 women total, right? So then he made them take up spears and other weapons, and he asked the ladies, do you understand the difference between your left and your right? So they all reply, yes. So he said, okay. So he proceeds to tell them that he is going to give them a command to do facing movements. So he's going to say left face and in which they are to turn left. He's going to say right face and they should turn right. And then he will say about face and they will turn 180 degrees around. And then when he says eyes front, that means they are to look straight ahead. And they started to sound the drums, and he gave the order to right face. But the girls only burst out laughing. Okay, so if you could picture this, the king of Wu says to Sun Tzu, I want to put your 13 chapters on managing troops to the test. And ask them if they could be applied to women. Sun Tzu said yes. Divides them 180 women into two companies. Two of the king's favorite concubines are leading each company. 
So then he explains to them that when I give the command left face, you turn left, right face, you turn right, about face, you turn around, and then eyes front, you look straight ahead. He gives the command to right face and they burst out laughing. So in the wake of this, Sun Tzu gives the following comment. If words of command are not clear and distinct, if orders are not thoroughly understood, then the general is to blame. So Sun Tzu takes ownership of this and he says, okay, this could possibly be my fault. Maybe my directions were not clear. So he's taking the blame for that, right? So he begins to drill them again. And again, he gives them a command and he says, left face. But the girls again burst out into laughter. So then this time, Sun Tzu says, if words of command are not clear and distinct, if orders are not thoroughly understood, the general is to blame. But if his orders are clear and the soldiers nevertheless disobey, then it is the fault of their officers. So he took ownership for the failings of the company the first time and said, maybe it was my commands that weren't distinct. So this is my fault. He gives the command again. The girls start laughing. And he explains again that if it's the general's command is not clear, then it's the general's fault. But if they are clear, then and the troops disobey, then it's the fault of the officers. So Sun Tzu then ordered the two concubines that were heading of the companies to be beheaded. So then it reads, The king of Wu was watching the scene from atop of a raised pavilion, and when he saw that his favorite concubines were going to be executed, he was greatly alarmed and hurriedly sent down the following message. He said, We are now quite satisfied as to our general's ability to handle troops. If we are not befret of these two concubines, our meat and drink will lose their savior. It is our wish that they shall not be beheaded. So the king sees that his two favorite concubines are about to be beheaded, and he interfere, intervenes and says, uh, we are sa- I'm satisfied with your ability to lead troops, and there's no need for these two to be beheaded, right? But Sun Tzu replies with this. He says, Having once received His Majesty's commission to be the general of his forces, there are certain commands of His Majesty which, acting in, the, in that capacity, I am unable to accept. Sun Tzu replied, Having once received His Majesty's commission to be general of his forces, There are certain commands of his majesty which, acting in that capacity, I am unable to accept. So Sun Tzu then has the two concubines beheaded. Now this is an interesting account here. Because Sun Tzu receives from his king in order to not behead his two favorite concubines. But Sun Tzu's response to that was, you have made me commissioned 
to be the general of your forces, meaning these two companies. And while I'm serving in that capacity, there are certain commands from the king that I cannot accept. So one of them was interfering with the discipline of the troops. And that, well, we're going to continue and see why this was. So after the two concubines were beheaded, he made the next two leaders up to be in command. So the next two concubines are now in the lead. And then they sounded the drum and they continue in. So Sun Tzu gives the command this time to left face, right face, about face, starts marching. And they all follow the commands and they are drilling and marching perfectly. So it says, accordingly, he had two leaders beheaded and straightway installed the pair next in order as leaders in their place. When this had been done, the drum was sounded for the drill once more, and the girls went through all the evolutions, turning to the right, to the left, marching ahead and wheeling back, kneeling or standing with perfect accuracy and precision, not venturing an utter sound. Then Sun Tzu sent a message to the king saying, Your soldiers, sire, are now properly drilled and disciplined and ready for your majesty's inspection. They can be put to any use that their sovereign may desire. Bid them go through fire and water, and they will not disobey. So then, after seeing the two concubines beheaded, the next two leaders that came up didn't want to get beheaded. So they had to show leadership. And all the other troops, after seeing the two concubines be beheaded, followed suit. and followed the commands of the general. So the king said that I don't want to have these two beheaded, but Sun Tzu knew that it was necessary for the integrity of the discipline of the troops for the two concubines to be beheaded. Because if they didn't, then this group would not be disciplined. And this would go against what Sun Tzu stood for. Because after the beheading, then the troops became disciplined. So then he gives a message to the king that your troops are now disciplined and trained and they will do whatever, will follow any orders that you give them. But the king goes on to say, let our generals cease drilling and return to camp. As for us, we have no wish to come down and inspect the troops. So then Sun Tzu replies with, the king is only fond of words and cannot translate them into deeds. So then after this, the king of Wu saw that Sun Tzu was one who knew how to handle an army and finally appointed him general. Prior to this, Sun Tzu was a esteemed warrior and he was actually believed to have been in retirement. And then after the his manuscript of the Art of War, the 13 chapters, was being circulated, got the attention of the king, and that's when the king asked him to meet with him to possibly see if he should be appointed as a general. 
in which he was. So my first takeaway from this story was that they were doing facing movements and drill, close order drill. This is exactly what we do in our military today, especially in boot camp and training. This is the foundation of discipline is close order drill to move as a unit. In the Marine Corps boot camp, you were drilling all the time. Anywhere you go, you're marching, you're drilling, you're practicing. Even when you're not just on the parade deck and you're in your block of drill practice, you are drilling on the way to the chow hall, on the way to the classroom, on the way to the PT, on the way to the quarter deck, on the way to chow. You are drilling all the time. You're learning to march, do facing movements as one unit. And they were doing this over 2,500 years ago in China. This is amazing. Now, there's a common misconception that military people are a bunch of yes men and only follow orders. They're just robots that go and follow orders. But the truth is that in the military, you have to be able to think and you have to be able to have a good head on your shoulders and not be a robot. Yes, you have to follow orders, lawful orders, right? So you can't say, hey, you received orders to move your duty station from the East Coast to the West Coast. You don't have an option to say, no, I'm not going, okay? Or if your sergeant or staff sergeant says, hey, we need to do an an inventory on all of our gear, you can't say, no, I'm not doing that inventory. You could, you're going to be disciplined for it, right? But in a combat situation, if you're on a patrol and you're clearing a, a house and your squad leader tells you to go go through this open go through this door and clear this room, but you as a private, you see wires underneath the door or sticking out, something seems off. You're thinking this door might be booby trapped and your squad leader doesn't see it. It is your duty to say a corporal, sergeant, I don't think that's a good idea because of X, Y, and Z. I see this. And then sure enough, you might have just saved your whole fire team or your whole squad from a booby trap. Okay, so you have to be able to use your mind. You can't just blindly follow orders because they say, oh, the sergeant told me to go through that door even though it was booby trapped under the door. That's not what the military wants. The military wants people to think, right? So if... You're in a situation where something is off. It is okay to bring in that up the chain of command, not in a disrespectful way, not and say, oh, I'm not doing that. I'm not, no, no way. But it is okay to say, hey, corporal, hey, sergeant, uh, just so I could better understand what this mission is. Can you explain this to me a little bit better? Can you, so I can execute this task to the best of my ability? Or if you see something is actually really wrong and say, sir, I don't think that this is a good idea because of this reason. Now, you brought it up, the chain of command, that vice may be listened to or not listened to, but they want people to think that your leaders need you to be their eyes and their ears to things that they can't see. A leader cannot see everything that is going on from small unit leadership, fire team leaders, squad leaders, platoon leaders. Up to the battalion level, 
They cannot see everything, right? So the troops on the ground, the lance corporals, PFCs, privates, they're the eyes and the ears. And they have to be able to see and relay information up and down the chain of command, right? So if something comes down from high above that says, this is what we need to do, we need to go across this river. But if there's a problem with that, there's a reason why it can't be done. There's something that is interfering or it's going to get a lot of people injured or killed. You have to, that has to be relayed up the chain of command in a respectful way saying, listen, I understand that you want this to happen, but if this does happen, then this is going to be the result. And it's not a good idea to do that. We have to come up with a different plan. Okay. The military doesn't want you to be robots. They want you to be able to think, but you have to be able to follow orders. You can't be belligerent, right? But if there is a problem with the orders, then that needs to be relayed up the chain of command. So speaking on that, the Sun Tzu basically tells the king that this can't happen and that this is this discipline needs to be dealt with, right? So, and ultimately the king saw that the Sun Tzu does know how to lead troops and made him general and they go on to uh, win a lot of battles. So we're going to continue. We're going to go into the actual text of the 13 chapters. And this is chapter one. And it says laying plans. And it says Sun Tzu said the art of war is of vital importance to the state. It is a matter of life and death, a road either to safety or to ruin. Hence, it is a subject of inquiry, which can on no account be neglected. The art of war is then governed by five constant factors to be taken into account, and one deliberations when seeking to determine the conditions obtaining in the field. These are, number one, the moral law, two, heaven, three, earth, and four, the commander, and five, method and discipline. So this explanation or the commentary says that it appears from what follows that Sun Tzu means by moral law, a principle of harmony, not unlike that of Tao or Lao Tzu in its moral aspect. One might be tempted to render it by morale, where it is not considered as an attribute of the ruler in paragraph 13. The moral law causes the people to be in complete accord with their ruler, so that they will follow him regardless of their lives, dismayed by any danger. Without constant practice, the officers will be nervous and undecided when mustering for battle. Without constant practice, the general will be wivering and ear salute when the crisis is at hand. So heaven signifies night and day, cold and heat, times and season. So the commentators say, I think make an unnecessary mystery of two words here. And his commentator was by Ming Shai, refers to the hard and the soft waxing and waning of heaven. Hang 
C, however, may be right in saying that what is meant is the general economy of heaven, including the five elements, the four seasons, wind and clouds, and other phenomena. Great and small, danger and security, open ground and narrow passes, and chances of life and death. The commander stands for virtues of wisdom, sincerity, benevolence, courage, and strictness. So the five cardinal virtues of Chinese are humanity or benevolence, uprightness of mind, self-respect, self-control, or proper feelings, wisdom, sincerity, or good faith. Here, wisdom and sincerity are put before humanity and benevolence. And the two military virtues of courage and strictness substituted for uprightness of mind and self-respect, self-control, or proper feeling. By method and discipline are to be understood the marshalling of the army and its proper subdivisions, the graduations of rank among the officers, the maintenance of the roads by which supplies may reach the army, and the control of the military expenditure. It says these five heads should be familiar to every general, and he who knows them will be victorious, and he who knows them not will fail. Therefore, in your deliberations, when seeking to determine the military conditions, let them be made the basis of a comparison in this wise. Which of the two sovereigns is imbued with the moral law? Is in harmony with its subjects? Which of the two generals has lost ability? With whom lie the advantages derived of heaven and earth? On which side is discipline most rigorously enforced? So then the commentators add that who such as a strict disciplinary that once, in accordance with his own severe regulations against injury to standing crops, he condemned himself to death for having allowed his horse to shy in a field of corn. However, in lieu of losing his head, he was persuaded to satisfy his sense of justice by cutting off his hair. Suau and Suau's own comment on the present passage is charismatically curt. When you lay down a law, see to it that it is not disobeyed. If it is disobeyed, then the offender must be put to death. So that was a commentary that was written by Sao. I don't know how to pronounce that. It's T-S apostrophe A-O. T-S apostrophe A-O. And that was, that was quote, written in A.D. 155 to 220. So around 155 years to 220 years in the A.D. All right. So it says morality as well as physically, as the Mayo Chu's put it, freely referred to spirit decor and big battalions. On which side are the officers and men more highly trained? So without constant practice, the officers will be nervous, undecided when mustering for battle. Without constant practice, the generals will be wivering and irresolute when the crisis is at hand. Which army is there a greater consistency both in reward and punishment. So these are all factors to consider when waging war against another army. So you ask these questions. On which side is there a more 
absolute certainty that merit will be properly rewarded and misdeeds similarly punished. By means of these seven considerations, I forecast victory or defeat. The general that hearkens to my counsel and acts upon it will conquer. Let such a one be retained in command. The general that hearkens not to my counsel nor acts upon it will suffer defeat. Let such a one be dismissed. All warfare is based on deception. Hence, when able to attack, we must seem unable. When using our forces, we must seem inactive. When we are near, we must make the enemy believe that we are far away. When we are far away, we must make him believe that we are near. So that's what he means when he says that all warfare is based on deception. All right, we're going to stop here for today. And we're going to continue this on the next podcast. Please like, subscribe, and share to this podcast. If you're listening on Apple Podcast, hit that subscribe button, hit a review. If you're watching on YouTube, hit the subscribe, hit the share button, uh, send it to your friends. This is Flip the Script Podcast, transmission number 12, out.